the only way for that system to subsist into the future is for them to print more and more money. And in either scenario, whether they print money or they don't, the economic engine collapses. Hello there, how are you all? Have you had a good week? Are you all looking forward to your weekend? I am. We've got football tomorrow, playing Rawnstown at home in the league. It's my last game before I head out to the US to make a bunch more shows and go to the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. And I'm also heading out to the Texas Blockchain Summit. I'm looking forward to seeing a bunch of you. I'm looking forward to catching up with my team, see Danny, see Jeremy, and go make a bunch more shows. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. I've got a regular back on the show. I've got my good buddy Parker Lewis back on what Bitcoin did. Now Parker is one of the most bullish people on both Bitcoin and Austin. And every time I'm in Austin, he's trying to convince me to move there. Sorry, Parker, I bought a football team now. I've got to head back to Bedford when I'm done. But while we were in town, we obviously had to catch up. So we sat down and got into why Bitcoin can't lose and to give everyone a bit of a pep talk why the price is going sideways. Now, I hope you enjoy this. And as ever, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I'm getting quite a lot of emails at the moment. I will get through to all of them. If you do send me one, please be patient. I have to find an hour here or there to get through them. But I will reply to you if you do get in touch. All right, on to Parker and on to the show. Parker, how you doing, man? Good to have you back in Austin. You always say that. <laughs> I love coming back, though. Love it here, man. Um, what's this, like the 50th trip or something? I'm not counting. It's like a second home. Yeah, I feel like you just should move here, but uh, maybe you've chosen Miami. I don't know. No, not, definitely not Miami. Okay. We, just, we go there for some interviews. This is, our, this is our home from home. Danny likes it here. You I get really it now, like it. don't you? Oh, I like Austin a lot, yeah. Oh, so Austin- we, didn't, we didn't have Danny on the mic last Danny, time. Danny, do you like... Awesome more than Miami? Oh, yeah, more than Miami, for sure. For sure. I like Nashville a lot. I think Nashville might be my favorite. Yeah, yeah. N- Nashville's a, a close-ish second. Nash- Nashville's the competition. Yeah. Nashville's a bit more... It's the friendly competition. Friendly yeah. competition. Yeah, we're friends with all those guys. We want every city to be a Bitcoin city, including Bedford. Yeah, uh, well, Be- Bedford isn't a city. Is it not? It's a town. It's a town. Uh, I don't know what defines it. it. It has to have a cathedral. I think it's a cathedral, yeah. Yeah, so it has to have a cathedral to be a city. I think we're a little bit looser with our definitions here in Texas. It's a British We do quote. have towns, but yeah. well, no one uh, really knows the differences. What's the population here? In Austin? Yeah. I, th- I think about 2 million. Right, so we're... Uh, the MSA is 2 million. I think the city, the proper city limits is closer to a million. Yeah, so we're 174,000 in Bedford. And... We have one Bitcoiner there, which is me. But we're trying to spread the... You told me just earlier when we were watching the game that 30 Bitcoiners came out to the meetup. Yeah, they're not from Bedford. They came from uh, all over the country. So we, uh, But we, we, we're trying to Bedford pill and we're trying to Bedford pill people in America and we're trying to orange people, pe- uh, orange people, orange pill people in Bedford. Orange British people pill... People, <laughs> orange... You know what I'm saying. We're trying to do that. No, we are. We're building a community there. What was uh, super interesting, the first meetup, we had 30 locals come who know nothing about Bitcoin. Uh, we had Connor Okus teaching them about Bitcoin, and we were giving out uh, Bitcoin on Lightning Network. Uh, we got people to down- download, was it Moon Wallet? Yeah, Moon. Moon Wallet, we're giving everyone Bitcoin. It was cool. People are, people are understanding it. And you build a little community like that, and it grows and grows and grows. And uh, you know, a handful of those people are now coming back with questions. I, I mentioned earlier, maybe it's to you or to Will, um, I got a message from my cousin who came and he was, he's now saying to me, what do I do about custody? Cause I've got it in a hot wallet. Should I get a hardware wallet? So those questions are starting to happen and you know what it's like. Those 30 people might become 60 people and 
100 people, and before you know it, we're the El Zonte of England. Yeah, we. I mean, we do orange people one by one, and um, one of the one of the beautiful things I think you were talking about earlier is there's something very low time preference about uh, that project. It's in the tenth division each year. Hopefully, your team will win, move up a division. More people will be exposed to not just the team but the brand, um, and more people will learn about Bitcoin. Yeah, see what you're doing. That is my Trojan horse. Essentially, is my Trojan horse to Bitcoiners, to Orange Pill as many people in the UK as possible. Uh, we have a Bitcoin logo on the shirt. We have it in the badge. And, uh, you know, our project ultimately is to try and get a team from the bottom to the Premier League, which everyone in the UK thinks I'm ridiculous and I'm an idiot and it can't be done. I say it can be done, but it might take time. It might, be, it might take two decades. It might be a case that it's a project carried on after I die by somebody else. But it's creating that trajectory that gets us there. And it is a low time preference thing. It is one game at a time, one season at a time, one one person at a time. Fingers crossed. Well, they won today. 2-0. 2-0. You got a bar in Austin to play the game and to have the audio on while there were two uh, Champions League games going on at the same time. Well, so, there were more Real Bedford fans than Liverpool fans there. There were. What did that finish? Did that finish 2-0? I didn't even see. Yeah. It's because this is a Bitcoin city. It is a Bitcoin city. A lot of Bitcoin. Yeah, man. It's a Bitcoin city. Um, okay. I want to talk to you about something today. We are, I'm in my third bear market, my second real bear market. The th first time I just gave up and ignored Bitcoin and forgot about it. But this is my second one where I'm living through it and surviving it. You know, it's like you survive a bear market. Uh, but as Bitcoin grows, we get more and more people coming in every time. We know that because... Uh, we see the increase in downloads is that acceleration in growth each time. But it also says to me there's an acceleration of the number of people who are going through this for the first time. And I feel like it's a good time to try and get get back and explain to people what the mission is, why we're doing this, remind them uh, uh, where we're going with Bitcoin. And yeah, me and Danny talked about, you know, if we're going to do this with somebody, Parker Lewis is probably the best person to do it because... I think you're one of the most level-headed people explaining Bitcoin. You, you're not on this roller coaster of burn the state down and create. You're just a businessman creating a Bitcoin business who has 100% conviction behind it. Would you accept that description? I would accept that as generally <laughs> accurate. Um, I think that you know whenever I you know again and this is I think this would be my considered second bear market. I really got into Bitcoin in 2016. Um, I don't even know if what we experienced, you know, in last year was, you know, kind of an extension of the last cycle. But regardless, um, when I got into Bitcoin, it took me a while. I didn't immediately jump in, didn't immediately click. I did the work to, to understand why Bitcoin had value. And I think that realistically, Bitcoin is adopted as knowledge distributes and understanding Bitcoin is something that, that is difficult to do and that it's a lot easier to adopt Bitcoin when the price is increasing because people are effectively following um, people previously who had done the work and are following the herd. Um, but throughout the cycles, the value proposition of Bitcoin does not change. And you know, when you ask the question, like, what is our mission here? I, I do think that it's important to qualify that each person looks at Bitcoin and thinks about Bitcoin and uses Bitcoin for, the, for their own reasons. I literally just wrote, understanding of Bitcoin is personal. Yes. And I think everyone's journey to Bitcoin is also personal because in order to understand Bitcoin, 
you have to have some context of some fundamental questions about what money is, um, have some range of, of, of introspection to be able to question assumptions about what money is, and then understand how that relates to Bitcoin. But all of that then applies to everyone's own personal experiences and their their personal work experience, their education, their, their you know how they grew up, where they grew up. Um, and so it is a very personal journey. While people might use Bitcoin for different reasons, and I do think it's important to qualify the our or we, and I really speak with my own voice, but has spent a lot of time educating about Bitcoin, is anchoring back to why Bitcoin exists and why it is valuable. Because in the ups and downs of Bitcoin, you know, I like to think about Bitcoin's price more as purchasing power. Um, but that whether Bitcoin's going from 20K to 3,000 or 3,000 to 70,000 or 70,000 to 20,000, that Bitcoin was designed to be a better form of money. And it might not um, act or move on a day-to-day -day basis or be used on a day-to-day -day basis like other currencies that people are more commonly used to, uh, but it's designed to be a better form of money. And the way that it delivers that mechanism principally is affording, affording a form of money that simply can't be printed. And that if we're re-anchoring to, to the mission, it is we're living in a world where uh, inflation is rampant. Um, central banks are diverging in their approaches to solving the, the problem of inflation, ultimately my view is they've created the problem of inflation and they cannot solve it. The only thing that can is Bitcoin. That is why it exists. And that when I simplify it for people, it is there are multiple currencies in the world. Only one has removed the need for trust and only one uh, has has afforded people an option to opt in voluntarily to a form of money that can't be printed and that is controlled by no one. That is that is the why of why Bitcoin exists. It's also why Bitcoin is valuable. And I always anchor to that. Bitcoin's going up or down and people always ask me the question like, I thought Bitcoin was supposed to be an inflation hedge. Why is it going down when there's a lot of inflation? But I always have to root people in all fundamental value, in my view, is derived from the fact that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Um, now that it also so happens that that is only possible so long as Bitcoin is permissionless, that anyone can join the network, it is resistant to censorship, that 21 million is tied to that concept of it's also permissionless to send Bitcoin to anyone from anyone, uh, and that censorship at the protocol level is not possible. Those things go hand in hand in my mind, but that fixed supply that being able to opt into a form of money that can't be printed is the fundamental value proposition. That is hard for people to understand. So it doesn't matter what the Fed is doing or what the ECB is doing or what the BOJ is doing. It really doesn't matter what is happening in the fundamental inflation um, mechanics of those, those currencies that, that have been printed in significant form because Bitcoin adoption happens as people learn and understand Bitcoin. And those two things are often attached. Sometimes they collide. When the Fed printed $3 trillion in three months in 2020, a lot of people figured out Bitcoin then. So they are related, but they are also not perfectly correlated. Okay, so why can't they solve the problem of inflation? Is it the incentive models of those who make the decisions? Is it the political cycle? I would say they can't solve the problem of inflation because they are the source of inflation. When I say they, 
I'm talking specifically about global central banks that control the supply. Um, that is one fundamental distinction when we talk about, when I talk about the distinction between Bitcoin being a form of money that can't be printed and a form of money that can. The central bank fiat currencies not just are printed, but are printed persistently, chronically, however you want to describe it. But the other key distinction between it is it is a trustless system in Bitcoin versus a trusted system, that there is a central group of people that control the supply of dollars, euros, yen, and what they have shown empirically is that they have no other mechanism to manage the economy other than create more money and then for periods of time subtract the amount of money in the system that, in my view, that trust has already been broken. When we think about you know, food being 10 to 15% more expensive, if not higher, gasoline prices 25% higher than a year ago, all of that is related to the fact that central banks printed trillions of dollars over the course of the last three years, but, but extending back to the great financial crisis. All inflation monetary of monetary means comes from the fact that historically, a lot more dollars, a lot more euros, a lot more pounds, a lot more yen have been printed. Now, to the question of why that has to persist, it is because their entire systems, the, the Feds, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, uh, the Bank of England, their entire system is based uh, on, a, on a debt fueled bubble. Um, their, their whole system is, is credit-based. And the underlying currency that they produce digitally has to be printed, otherwise their entire system collapses on itself. Because functionally, for four decades, over the course of you know early 1970 to, to the great financial crisis, they slowly introduced more money in, in order to allow existing debt levels in their credit systems to be maintained rather than to be restructured. That created a massive and unsustainable credit bubble. And the only way for that system to subsist into the future is for them to print more and more money. And in either scenario, whether they print money or they don't, the economic engine collapses. It either collapses because they print too much money, or as we're seeing now with the Fed, as they're trying to rein it in, they've already, they've already, it's basically like the, the difference between pulling on a thread and trying to pu push the thread back yeah. in the hole. And and do you see a scenario where we're about to see another significant print? Because there are divergent opinions on this. Some people, uh, who was it who was saying the other day? I mean, there's a lot of people are on the, like, in the camp of a print coming soon, but I mean, yeah. people like Jeff Snyder, I don't think he thinks there is. He it? doesn't, but Greg Foss does, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Do you, do you ever believe that we have another print coming? Is it inevitable? It is inevitable. And that's also how I think about re-anchoring. Price is going, you know, the price of Bitcoin, purchasing power of Bitcoin is increasing, decreasing. The thing that is inevitable is that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, and that is enforced on a trustless basis, uh, only because it's it's decentralized and continue to, to become more decentralized over time. And that as a certainty, whether it's a week from now, a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, potentially a little bit longer, but probably not beyond that. But inevitable certainly is that the Fed and all central banks are going to have to print more money um, and that dynamic is governed by the fact, and I always like to anchor people in, in hard numbers that, that aren't 
difficult to calculate the, the you know, I, I usually focus on the Fed because I'm based in the United States. I'm more familiar with them. But today, approximately $90 trillion in dollar-denominated debt exists and about $9 trillion exists in the banking system. Um, now, what that equation looked like during the great financial crisis, there was $52 trillion of dollar-denominated debt and only about $350 billion in the banking system. There were about a trillion dollars total. Um, and so the money supply, the base money supply, which is the one that matters the most, it's the, it, it, is the, it is the money supply that allows for credit expansion, that has increased by nine times. But if we fast forward today and there's $90 trillion of dollar-denominated debt in the world, and that is very vanilla, fixed maturity, fixed liability debt, like your mortgage, your student loans, um, corporate debt, state, local, federal, um, not derivatives, not unfunded pension liabilities, 90 to 9. Um, when the Fed starts to raise interest rates, everyone that is in this leverage short dollar position, uh, because while the dollar is becoming more and more abundant and its value is going to zero because of that, um, it is still relatively scarce. The, the, the United States, the world as a whole, they are short dollars because of that debt to dollars dynamic. That is the same thing that guarantees or dictates that they will have to print more dollars because what happens is as the Fed, quote, tightens or raises interest rates, the world figures out that they're far more than just a dollar short, and they start to scramble around to find dollars to pay dollar-denominated liabilities. Now, not every dollar-denominated liability is due tomorrow or the next day or in a week or in a month or in a year, but they're due. And as that financing condition becomes tighter, everyone starts to scramble. And as they do that, they're effectively causing the credit system to start to collapse on itself. Um, and then what has to happen from the Fed's perspective, this is what happened in 2009, it's the same thing that happened in 2020, and it will be the same thing, whether it's later this year or next or the next, is that as that credit system begins to collapse, they will have to supply it with more dollars, otherwise it's sure extinction. If they print more dollars, it has the potential to kick the can down the road, but it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. They created this um, incredibly, basically this unrecoverable system, and it's something that is not repairable. You can't repair the legacy system, and what Bitcoin is doing is it's saying, that system is broken. Some Somebody or some group of people thought of Bitcoin, executed it, people started to learn about it, contribute to it, adopt it, but what it is functionally doing is replacing a system that is irreparably broken. But do we know how it breaks if they didn't print? What is the scenario? How does it play out? How does it break? Well, so the way that it breaks if they do not print, think about the equation of $90 trillion of dollar-denominated debt Default. and $9 trillion. That, that um, if they do not print, that as the world figures out that these debts can't be repaid, that there aren't just defaults, but there are waves and waterfall effects of defaults. The one default functionally causes the next. Um, that causes functionally a bank run. Uh, banks become insolvent. In this world that, that the Fed and central bankers uh, and Keynesian academics have created, um, the banking system went from just another sector of the economy that freely competed for monetary capital alongside every other industry to being the lifeblood 
of their system, such that everything has to go in and out of the banking system, every financial transaction functionally, such that if business after business starts to default and the banks become insolvent themselves, then the coordination engine of the currency itself fails. That means goods and services not being delivered to market, gasoline not getting to gas stations, not necessarily holistically, but the, but the impairment of that ability, less food on the, the shelves at grocery stores. So as there's more and more money, as that's actually more abundant, and the delivery of goods and services becomes more and more impaired, you have more money competing for fewer goods and services, and there are certain things in the economy that are inelastic. Um, and when, I'm, when I talk about inelastic, I'm talking about food at the grocery store. It doesn't matter if you have a job or not, you need to eat to survive. Doesn't matter if you have a job or not. You need gasoline to get a, to, to a doctor or to wherever you're going in the day. Um, if you want cl- clean water at your house, you want plumbing. You need power. Those goods are inelastic, um, and that as that function breaks down, the ability to get those services becomes harder and harder. While the same amount, if not more, money exists. And so it's that function of the credit system collapsing, the ability of those companies that may become insolvent to deliver services become impaired, that has knock-on effects, creates a run on the bank because the banks and their solvency becomes in question. They're the ones who have issued all these loans that run on the bank. And then ultimately the whole coordination engine just collapses and that's the, the dollar hyperinflates in that scenario. So it's like, if they print, they likely kick the can down the road. If they don't, the system collapses far faster. So kicking the can down the road, do you see it as uh, a period of controlled inflation until it breaks it the other way? Is, is it something whereby, yes, we're having 10, 15% inflation, yeah, real numbers, uh, then perhaps that gets under control, we get down to maybe 5%, but they have to print again. Do you see it, or do you see either scenario we're going to end up at some point with the currency collapsing either way? The, the currency collapsing is inevitable. Okay. Yeah. But could that be something decades away? Um, it could be. It, um, it's impossible to predict. And that's why, you know, when I think about a framework of the future of Bitcoin, of what's going to happen with, with fiat currencies, the collapse is inevitable. And Bitcoin emerging as the currency that facilitates um, not just the vast majority, but practically speaking, all of the world's commerce, to me at this point is inevitable. And we can talk a little bit about how I think mm. about that. But the legacy system is 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 broken to a point that it can't be repaired and that the root of it, right? Like if you anchor to something that is a fundamental fact that cannot be altered in this world, it is that the cost to produce a dollar is zero. The cost to produce $100 million is zero. The cost to produce a trillion dollars is zero. Cost to produce $5 trillion is zero. It's the same equation for the Bolivar. Cost the Venezuelan government zero to print trillions of dollars it functionally um, or marginally. Same for the ECB, same for the BOJ. That is the fundamental fact that the cost to produce money is controlled by a very, or, sorry, the control is in the hands of a very few number of people. Um, and they've already done it to such an extent that the Pandora's box was opened. Um, and it put themselves in a situation where it allowed this uh, unsustainable debt 
bubble to to metastasize um, or to become a bubble in the first place and then metastasize from there. And at the same time that that exists, because the two things are related, there is competition now, meaningfully for the first time. Since fiat currencies emerged, there is, for the first time in Bitcoin, a meaningful alternative to if you are sitting there in the world and you recognize that it costs zero to print $5 trillion, not just that that is true, but that they do it and that they have to do it, and, oh, here's this thing, Bitcoin. It is trust versus trustlessness. It is printing trillions of dollars for zero cost versus a fixed supply that cannot be printed but are issued based on a consensus set of rules and by proof of work. A versus B. It's A versus B for all 8 billion people in the world. And when someone opts out of the legacy currency, a fiat currency like the dollar and decides to start to store wealth in Bitcoin, um, that is part of the currency collapsing. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients in all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is Wasabi. Now, Wasabi is what I'm using to keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. Or the magic happens automatically in the background, which was a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently, and Wasabi 2.0 makes it so easy. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council is putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. This event will be two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. Day two is where we will hear from top policy leaders in the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, and CFTC commissioners. So what more could you ask for? Now, I'm not just promoting this. I will be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies, and interviewing a very important person. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. And also, if you come along, come say hello. It'd be good to meet some of you. To find out more, please head over to texasblockchainsummit.org. That is texasblockchainsummit.org. Also, today we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying now. It's a buying time. We're holding right. 
I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini is also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. So have you found yourself when you're explaining Bitcoin to people, whether it's a potential new customer or family or friend, that the way you are explaining it has changed? Because... I have. Like, I find, especially right now, it becomes a lot easier to explain why Bitcoin has value by explaining what is going wrong in the current system. Especially, I mean, you can't help but miss what's going on in the UK at the moment. We've got high inflation, rising interest rates. We nearly had the pensions collapse. The government suddenly found 60 billion when they can't even pay for some uh, social services. They found 60 billion to rescue the pension funds. Uh, We've got a massively growing debt to GDP ratio. Um, we've got a both a government and a currency that I think is in crisis. That becomes a lot easier to explain. You know, when somebody turns around to me and says, you know, why should I care about Bitcoin? Explain Bitcoin to me. And actually, I just start explaining what the problems are with the current system. Whereas I used to explain what Bitcoin is. I used to say censorship-resistant monies. But now I just explain the problems with the, the current system. Is that something you're finding you're doing? So the way that I under- came to understand Bitcoin in 2016 really revolved around this whole thing. Like I, okay. I figured out that, you know, at that point in time, the Fed was in the process of at least starting to signal to the market about how they were going to unwind post-financial crisis quantitative easing. And I realized that that would never be possible, that they would never be able to, to get out. They would never be able to unwind. And even if they uh, pursued a path over 2017, 2019 to take some portion of that money that they had put in from 2009 to 2014, they would never be able to sustain that and they would have to put in far more money. So is that sorry, just to interrupt, is that because you can't close the gap between dollar denominated debt and dollars available that have been issued? You cannot close that. The only way to close that is by printing money. I mean, functionally, there are technically two ways. You could either let the debt collapse, or you could you know, like really there's two frameworks. Yeah. You have a debt problem. 2008-9, we had, I think most people, even at this point who didn't understand what happened at the time, recognized that we had a uh, unsustainable, an instable and unsustainable debt problem. In that scenario, you can either allow debt to be restructured, to basically be written off, or you can print more money to be able to repay those obligations. Um, so like the way I think about it is like with an individual company, when it can't pay its obligations, it restructures, you know, potentially it restructures and continues forward or it goes away. Same with a mortgage. You right. can restructure your mortgage. Yeah. Uh, but, but you're basically writing debt down. Same with an industry. Maybe there's a secular shift and we move away from an industry. Those companies either restructure or they go away. Uh, but when it comes to the system as a whole, the debt levels create this scenario where, um, Functionally speaking, over the course of of many decades, the Fed responded by rather than taking a debt problem and allowing a system to be to be restructured and, and to 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 allow debt system wide to be to be written down and written off, uh, 
they allowed an unstable debt problem to, to persist and to be exacerbated by introducing more dollars to allow credit to actually expand. Right. So, so for every new debt, there's a future demand for dollars. And so to meet that future demand, they have to print. Correct. Yeah. Because they basically got themselves into this quagmire of every time this predicament happened over the course of the 70s, 80s, 90s, on par into the 2000s, when that business cycle would contract, they would introduce more money to basically manage the quote business cycle. But mm-hmm. if they allowed the contraction, it's about that Ray Dalio video that we keep talking about, where he talks about the uh, the economic cycles that you have the periods, you have the credit booms, and then you have the yeah. you, know, you have the contractions. If they'd allowed that, then that would have been fine. We just would have gone through those periods. But they've eliminated the booms and busts, like in the UK. They basically used... suppressed volatility. Yeah, and then the ultimate outcome of that was to defer, not just defer volatility, but to exacerbate it. How, how does that, it's, a, it's, it's like the widening in wealth gap. How does that widening gap between credit and actual dollars happen? Is it because of things like, is it, is it the well, bond market? Is it pensions? Well, like, it's, it's just easy to talk in like real terms. Yeah. So kind of snapshot 2008, 2009, there was 52 trillion-ish of dollar-denominated debt. And about $350 billion in the banking system, about $1 trillion system-wide. From 2009 to 2014, the Fed introduced $3.6 trillion new dollars. So depending on whether you look at it as cash in the banking system, they increased the cash in the banking system by 10x, or as a system in the whole, they increased the cash total by about three and a half times. What, what those dollars did was allow those existing debt obligations to be sustained functionally, to to stop the bank run, to be to to allow more dollars to, to to service the existing debt burden, but what it also did was introduce new dollars to allow for credit expansion. Yeah. So by introducing 3.6 trillion of new dollars of base money over the period from 2009 to 2017, the amount of dollar-denominated debt expanded by 30 trillion approximately from like 52 trillion to to 82 trillion, approximately 80. So new dollars being introduced in the order of magnitude of 3.6 trillion to new debt being produced of 30 trillion that each dollar that is introduced, say I lend you money for 30 years to go buy a house. Well, now somebody has new deposits in the banking system. They might invest those in loans. They might issue another loan. So it basically compounds. And then it all comes to, you know, everyone, when they figure out that the system is unsustainable, then the reverse course of action takes place and there's knock-on effects. So for each dollar that is introduced in the system, many multiples of debt uh, can be produced because of how it's recycled in the system. Right, okay. So I, I do then therefore think one of the biggest jobs we have is educating people about the current system. Right, well, that's one of the things. Bitcoin's hard to understand, money's hard to understand, but the legacy system is hard to understand, right? Yeah. Trying to help them understand this. The way that I've, and coming back to your question of how how maybe explaining Bitcoin to people has changed, I've always con- gone down that consistent thread um, of like, the Fed has to print money, helping them understand why, helping them understand these, these debt-to-dollar dynamics, because what is really important to people is simply that fact of you've experienced 
historically, the fact that your government has printed money, whether it's government, central bank, they're fun- even though they're independent from each other, they're, f- they're functionally the same. Um, they're, they're tied to the hip, inseparable. Um, you know empirically that they have a track record of doing that. You might not understand why they do it, but you know that they do it. And then if I can help people understand this is why it is inevitable that they have to do it again, that there is actually a mechanism that forces their hand, um, that connects dots for them. And then when they understand that this thing, Bitcoin, is not blockchain tech, it's not you know the next tech wave, it's the solution to that problem, that makes it fundamentally easier for them to understand. What I have found in the last six to nine months is, and, and I've had to you know change some of how I've explained this, is Bitcoin, I like to think about Bitcoin as it's not an inflation hedge. Yeah, I was about to say it's a it's a it's a hedge against collapse. Well, I look at it as it's not a hedge against inflation. It is actually the solution to inflation. Okay. It's okay, taking yeah. the fly out of the ointment. Inflation is a function of people printing money. Yeah. Central banks, twelve people sitting around the table in New York or DC or wherever they meet in the equivalent in 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 the UK or Tokyo. Um and and Bitcoin fixes that. You can't print money. If you can't print money, we will not see monetary inflation. Monetary inflation is a function of that. Now, what is difficult for people to understand is, hey, at the same time when CPI inflation in the United States is 8 to 10% and real inflation, which everyone experiences at the grocery store or the gas station, is higher than that, they think of and they've been told a story that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. Or that simply if I go tell somebody, hey, government printed $3 trillion between March of 2020 and May of 2020, Bitcoin is the solution to that. That makes sense. But then what doesn't make sense is, hey, like why when there's more inflation is the price of Bitcoin not going up? So what I've had to do is help people understand how those two things are entirely consistent with each other. Because mm. um, we've collectively, and I say collectively, not same, we're all at fault, but collectively, the, that was a narrative that we took through Bitcoin. We said it's an inflation hedge, giving people the uh, anticipation that when we see high inflation, that more people will be buying Bitcoin to hedge against it, which just hasn't happened. But I see what you're saying now. It's the solution, but it's a work in progress. Yeah, and, and it requires I, more adoption. I, I look, calling Bitcoin a hedge to inflation, I think. Um, it's an attempt to meet people maybe where they are because they've thought about other things as hedges to inflation without questioning the fundamental cause of inflation and what the potential solution to that would be. So I kind of view like the description of it's a hedge to inflation as always having been kind of somewhat lazy or uh, if it wasn't lazy, it also wasn't accurate. Mm. because it's really competing at that monetary level, Bitcoin will replace the dollar, it will replace the euro, it will replace the yen, um, and that will fundamentally fix this problem that we all persist in, which is monetary inflation or the, the function of central banks printing trillions of dollars. Um, but but what I try to help people understand on that point is that Bitcoin, because the explanation for that, when people say, hey, Bitcoin is, even if you say, Let's forget that we said that it was a hedge to inflation. If Bitcoin is the solution to, to governments printing money, why in this environment where the the symptoms of what all these Bitcoiners have been talking about are playing out, why is Bitcoin not going up in that term, in, in, in that period of time? 
I simplify it for people these two ways. One is to recognize that while significant and material to the world, Bitcoin today, and even though it's working to replace the dollar, uh, the dollar at least is my still my unit of account, uh, and is most people's in the United States, maybe most people in the world, um, at least in terms of financial markets, that the entire Bitcoin universe is, you know, the purchasing power is about between $350 billion and $400 billion. The global financial system, the, global, the value of global financial assets is $400 trillion. Uh, the dollar is the 800-pound grill in the room, such that when the Fed is taking measures to tighten financial conditions, dollar financial conditions and dollar financing conditions, everything else gets dragged along as we're seeing, the euro, the pound, the yen, the stock market, the S&P, the Dow, the NASDAQ, every, everything becomes correlated to the dollar because the dollar is the funding currency of the world and everyone is short dollars. Uh, everyone is scrambling to source those dollars. So while Bitcoin is the solution to the problem of the Fed inevitably have to, to print more dollars to prop up the credit system. When you think about that relative size, when the, when the global financial market, the market for financial assets goes down by 1%, $4 trillion of paper wealth gets eliminated. Bitcoin as a total is $350 billion to $400 billion. When, when that market goes down by 5%, that's $20 trillion of wealth being evaporated. So... Um, when, despite the fact that the dollar will continue to be printed over time, what's happening right now is actually the dollar supply is becoming restricted. Um, so that's one half of it, that Bitcoin can be the solution to dollar inflation at the same time that the, that the dollar economy and what the Fed is doing by tightening conditions is creating a run on dollars and all liquid assets get sold when dollar financial, financial conditions get tighter. Second piece of this is, Bitcoin is adopted as a function of knowledge distribution. Bitcoin can't be, quote, a safe haven or it can't be something that people rush to unless people understand why it exists. And if we accept the fact that, yes, in certain periods of time, like when the Fed rips a Band-Aid off and prints $3 trillion over three months, that episode teaches people about Bitcoin. But that also is only very topical. Figuring out why Bitcoin has fundamental value, picking up a book, reading it, listening to hours of your podcast, that is how people accessing Bitcoin, setting up a wallet, sending a Bitcoin transaction, understanding the, the mechanisms that enforce Bitcoin's 21 million fixed supply credibly without the need for trust, that is how people actually adopt Bitcoin. That requires proof of work itself. Fed printing money might key in for people, I need to to listen to these people that are talking about Bitcoin, but you can only adopt Bitcoin as a function of knowledge distribution. That requires work. So at the same time when CPI is 8 to 10% and the Fed's tightening financial conditions, doesn't necessarily mean people understand Bitcoin better. They do as a function of time, but those things can be completely detached from each other over a year, two years. But what happens certainly is two things on either side of those equations. They will print trillions more dollars and more people will read books. More people will listen to podcasts. More people will learn about Bitcoin. Bitcoin's 
uh, knowledge distribution accelerates over time. Uh, it does happen in waves, and, and as it does, uh, more people adopt, and if it's a fixed resource, uh, then they have to force the price higher in order to, to accumulate it. If we talk in terms of real experience of using Bitcoin as money or considering Bitcoin as store of value, you are obviously 100% right that uh, it can't be debased. There will only be 21 million. And it is the solution to inflation. But the real world of experience is when somebody's experience is inflation, their purchasing power drops. When the price of Bitcoin drops heavily, their purchasing power drops in terms of the relative exchange rate of Bitcoin to dollars. I think a lot of people want to avoid that. A lot of people can't take that risk, especially at a time like now, because budgets are tight, belts are tightening. So whilst you say that Bitcoin is a solution to inflation, I agree. How do we get to the point where inflation is solved? Does it require the collapse of the currencies and full adoption of Bitcoin? How do we get to that point? Because for some people to adopt Bitcoin, they don't need the tech. They don't need it just technically solved. They need the real world experience solved. I think so. To, to start, where I would, I would, where I would anchor to there is that um, yes, when when the purchasing price of Bitcoin goes down, that that functionally has the the, the same effect as as a currency inflating, mm. right? But people have to to anchor to. Why does Bitcoin have fundamental value in the first place? Yeah, um, because while the entire world is going to be forced today, I want to say forced today is an option. Anybody can adopt Bitcoin on a voluntary basis, but if the rest of the world decides that Bitcoin is going to be the money that they demand for their goods and services, if you want to buy goods and services from those people, you're going to have to somehow have acquired Bitcoin, um, and the, and once we cross over a critical mass of once a, like a wider and wider consensus aggregated around Bitcoin being that long-term solution, then at that point, a lot of other people are going to be dragged along. They're going to have to adopt it as a currency. Um, but in this interim period, when we're, we're in this period that I would refer to as Bitcoin's monetization event, or when Bitcoin is being globally adopted to that point of full adoption, that it is volatile. Right, and mm. um, while my good friend Sahil like might like to to live on zero, yeah. <laughs> um, he he knows a lot about Bitcoin and and can tolerate the swings and manages his life a certain way. If people do not understand Bitcoin well, because when I talk about Bitcoin being adopted as a function of knowledge distribution, and that is literally picking up a book and reading it, the Bitcoin Standard, inventing Bitcoin, mastering Bitcoin. Bitcoin money grokking for Bitcoin. kids, grokking Bitcoin, listening to your podcast, listening to TFTC, listening to Stefan, that all requires time and work, hmm. right? There's no avoiding that. But the time when you first buy Bitcoin, your understanding of Bitcoin is necessarily limited because Bitcoin, part of the, the understanding of it is actually experiencing it over time, seeing Bitcoin work, actually interacting with the Bitcoin network. Not everyone has to run a node. Running a node helps to build a knowledge base. Sending Bitcoin transactions where you actually have a wallet, that functionally does. Um, helping people hold their own private keys, they actually learn about Bitcoin. When they live through a halvening, I refer to it as halvening, not halving, um, 
they learn something yep. about Bitcoin. They experience it from themselves as a Bitcoin holder that, hey, the rate of issuance just cut in half and no central party got together to determine that that was going to happen. How does that happen? They learn more. Um, but that is to make the point that from the first time that someone buys Bitcoin and then you start stacking up days, weeks, months, years, their knowledge and understanding of Bitcoin grows actually part of that process of having experienced it. So in that equation, if somebody does not understand Bitcoin very well and they allocate 80% of their savings to Bitcoin, that's a really bad idea because their level of adoption on a personal level got way out of the skis of their own understanding of it, their own ability to tolerate the volatility. Mm. Um, and you know, my recommendation is that everyone match. It's like you cannot fake proof of work in the context of Bitcoin or in your own understanding of it, that you have to match your exposure to Bitcoin, the, the percentage of your overall assets uh, relative to your knowledge and your understanding of it. And that as a function of time, as you start to understand it more, you don't just hear the term, the fact that there will be 21 million Bitcoin, but you understand two things. One, how it's enforced, why it's credible, why it is trustless, and two, that this all this other noise of, the, you know, people like to say, you know, I think most cryptocurrencies are useless, but there's, you know, a few that will win. It's like, no, 100% of all other cryptocurrencies will fail because we only need one form of money. As you pair that knowledge base with the understanding of why Bitcoin is not hackable or why it can't be undermined, why its fixed supply can't be undermined, like why exactly and how exactly it is trustless and why that fixed supply is credible, um, you will increase your exposure and you will also increase your tolerance for volatility. Um, but none of that changes the fact that you got to understand where you're at in the spectrum. And if you get out ahead of your skis, like Bitcoin is ruthless. You will have your purchasing power decline and you will likely sell your Bitcoin and some other stronger hand that has more knowledge. You know, think about all the people right now in October of 2022 that are selling Bitcoin at a price of 20,000. Someone's on the other side buying. Mm -hmm. um, and someone with more information, it's easier to, to acquire Bitcoin um, or to adopt Bitcoin when the price is going higher, when you're following the herd, uh, than it is when, when the tide's going out. Uh, and and the people that have more information over time step in uh, and take Bitcoin off of people that have less information. Do you think there's another thing as well, the longer you do this, because you've talked about understanding Bitcoin, understanding how it works, understanding 21 million, uh, understanding how financial markets work, understanding why central banks print money, all these things about understanding Bitcoin. But you also feel like with time, you know, with, with spending years on this, with the proof of work that you do, you get this second order effects from Bitcoin in that you don't just understand Bitcoin, you kind of understand yourself a bit better, you understand the world a bit better, you understand business a bit better, you understand, you know, proof of work, you understand like every part of your life. You, you know, like I'm overweight. If I want to lose weight, I've got to put the work in. I've not done it. I understand that through a different lens now because of Bitcoin. Do you think that's another thing that becomes part of this? Because And the reason I ask that is because, for me, it's not just about surviving a bear market so my uh, you know, purchasing power of my Bitcoin goes up. It's actually becoming part of the mission of what we think Bitcoin will deliver to the world. Again, to qualify that everyone 
thinks I about it differently. differently. Well, uh, what about you, though? Yeah, I think on a personal level. You empathize level, with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think many people do. And I think that one of the ways that I would explain that is in my own personal context, I like to think of myself as someone who's perfectly predisposed to not understand Bitcoin. Kind of classical Keynesian economics degree, um, went and worked uh, in New York for an investment bank to start my career and then worked in financial restructuring. Um, just perfectly set up to, to reject it. Many people that follow that path have and are similarly disadvantaged. But you, you did it. You did reject it at first. I remember you telling me the story. I would say that um, I, I was skeptical, skeptical, never dismissive. Okay. Okay. Partly that was because um, the people that were in my ear telling me about it had told me things in the past that turned out to be true. Uh, one of them being Will Cole, who yeah. you had on recently or in the last few months. But even still, it was like once. I developed a framework to understand it, understand Bitcoin, understand the problems, because that part of that process was understanding the, the, the problems inherent and, and those problems not being um, repairable or fixable. Um, that it then made you, it made, every, it made so many other things make sense. Solving that one equation of that really fundamental question of what is money? What gives money value? What function, what problem does money solve? What what are the implications of having good money? What are the implications of having bad money? What happens when monies fail? Once you go from seeing the world, you know, entirely flipped over, and then it's, you know, I think another analogy is it slows everything else down, mm. provides you an anchor point, not just as a source of truth. I think that's kind of like too intangible of a con concept, but you see a lot of the, the negative incentives, not just that there's a problem with the legacy system, but you see a lot of the negative incentives and then you see the outcomes that the symptoms of those. Um, and while it might not be perfectly explained by the negative incentives of a form of money that is constantly debased, you, you see at a root level that it contributes to it and probably in a material way or in a way that's largely explainable by that fact. And that then when you figured out, hey, here this thing Bitcoin is and it's the solution to that problem, um, yeah, in, in a weird way, at least in my own personal experiences, it tangibly helps you, fo you know, focus on a different set of values, of, mm. of things that you might want to do differently. Um, in terms of, you know, kind of most directly certain economic, individual economic decisions. But then more broadly, I think that, you know, in like the second derivative, third derivative, start to be around a group of people that have more aligned incentives. Um, I do think that there is something, in order to come to Bitcoin, in, under, in order to, to understand and adopt Bitcoin as money, I think you have to approach it with high degrees of humility. Well, there's another thing that is you're, you're basically... Uh, willfully opting into a system where no one is in control, including yourself. Well, once you opt into that, once you have the humility, not just to say, hey, let me understand this. I'm going to do the work. Maybe there's something here. But then you're like, yes, and this is the solution. Well, the group of people, the other people in the world that have come to those same conclusions for those similar reasons, they share a value set. And then you start to be around those group of people. You start thinking about the types of 
companies you want to build, which are not all Bitcoin infrastructure companies. Um, they might leverage Bitcoin, what the Beef Initiative is doing to leverage mm. Bitcoin. It's not a Bitcoin company, yeah, but it's leveraging Bitcoin. It's leveraging the Bitcoin community. So I do think that there are many derivative effects, um, you know, all starting from that point of I now have a better form of money. I now am keying in on the world's greatest secret. I am now going to question every financial transaction that I make with a with a um, a much closer eye um, and with much more scrutiny. And I'm probably going to be around people that are similarly more focused than they otherwise would to, towards the long term, um, more focused on, you know, kind of improving, kind of, you know, seeing a problem in the world, seeing a solution, and then wanting to work and be a small part of contributing to that solution. Well, this is why we end up with this kind of like decentralized friends group around the world. Like we can come out here and make shows and do a show with you, but we're going to go and have dinner afterwards and hang out. And sometimes we don't make a show and we're going to hang out. And we've got that the same everywhere we go, whether we go to LA or to London or even our little sprint in Bedford. You you have this like peer group that you've built around you, who have got those shared values. Um, we don't always all agree on everything. Um, culturally, there's some differences, certainly between Bevard and Austin. But like there are this kind of similar set of values that kind of anchors us together. Um, in terms of running a business, obviously, congratulations on Unchained. Like I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a few years now and seeing the growth of that company is incredible. So um, congratulations. But as also running and building a company within the Bitcoin space, has that changed or evolved your understanding of Bitcoin in any way specifically? Because it does come with the different challenges like everything is a derivative of bitcoin we have challenges running a podcast which is bitcoin based we are part paid in bitcoin which we hold in bitcoin which comes with challenges so you know i've got a different understanding of bitcoin because of that but what has your experience been because we're six people you're a lot more yeah i think that um one you know when you're building a bitcoin company um at least one like ours, but I would expect, you know, from my, I'm friends with a lot of people that build other companies um, that if they're that they're, if they're focused exclusively on Bitcoin, because the world where you have Grift that's building things on crypto and NFTs and DeFi and that whole nonsense, all of that is worthless. It's like lighting money on fire. So like when I talk about building a Bitcoin company, it is about building infrastructure that is valuable for Bitcoin. Um, in our world, and when I look at our peers out there as well, um, similarly um, focused on Bitcoin, there's a lot of Bitcoiners that work at our company. Most, actually, not all, but most. And so you're interacting on in a day-to-day -day basis with people that have kind of similarly stumbled upon or done the proof of work to, to, to figure out this thing, Bitcoin, and on a day-to-day -day basis, when you're spending eight to ten hours around those people or interacting with those people, that that has a positive effect on itself. In addition to then the kind of extensions of those, like the local community here in Austin or whatever city you go to, where there's a Bitcoin meetup popping up, um, that I don't think it necessarily like. Again, this is the first company I've been a part of building. Historically, I worked in the traditional financial services that. It makes it easier, I would expect, to, to tolerate the volatility. And even though it's challenging, like the volatility presents real challenges to our business. Yeah. From a planning perspective, the volatility itself. Um, but on a personal level and on a on a, an ability to 
despite the tide going out and coming in, the ability to to stand firm and not waver, it's always coming back to that understanding of Bitcoin. That understanding of Bitcoin for me, building a Bitcoin company is reinforced by working with my peers that see the world and also similarly are standing shoulder to shoulder working. Like think about how difficult it would be to build infrastructure for Bitcoin like we are when most of the world's turned the TV off, right? It would be impossible to build infrastructure through cycles adoption cycles, that is, adoption mm. waves and corrections, um, if you did not have some anchor point in the world that allowed you to understand and explain that. And specifically, building a Bitcoin company is reinforcing that because you're around a bunch of Bitcoiners. But then also my process of writing, which was semi you know, related to my business, but also independent, that writing process distilled it down. I have a, I have a, a reason to go out and talk to Bitcoin to people in the energy industry and in any industry functionally Bit energy and bitcoin happen to have a, a very tight strategic uh relationship around proof of work but that in itself that process of writing the process of thinking about products the, the interaction with peers the interaction with clients all of that i think makes it easier for people in this world to to not get distracted by the cycles versus if you were on the periphery and you weren't zeroed in on all the infrastructure being built, seeing the quality of people, seeing the communities locally build up, um, it might be a lot harder to to hold mm. firm in these times. So, it yes, it does present challenges, but it also makes being a Bitcoiner a lot easier at the same time. And does it give companies a natural culture? Yes, it does. Yeah, because building culture is hard, and yeah. if you have to ride through difficult times, you know the tide going out. If you have that natural culture that everyone understands, I guess it collectively brings you together. It does, and I, you know, I can describe this from my own personal experience. You know, when I, some people who maybe, you know, started um, becoming our clients in 2020 or 2021, or you know, adopted Bitcoin for the first time in 2020, and are familiar with Unchain, um, they might not know that. You know, when I joined Unchained, we supported Ethereum. Um, now, I was always a proponent for, for dropping Ethereum. Before I even joined, I formed a view as to, to why Bitcoin was the solution to money and why it was going to be adopted globally um, and why functionally any other token or fiat currency would be, um, would, would be basically... Ha would have its price trend to zero because the world would adopt Bitcoin as a preferential mm -hmm. standard. Um, Unchained wasn't always a Bitcoin company. Um, that we made a decision to drop Ethereum, to focus on Bitcoin, to focus on people holding their own private keys, to empowering people to do that and people, individuals and businesses. As we did that, we started to attract talent. We started to attract more clients. We started to attract talent and individuals that wanted to work on Bitcoin. As we did that, our culture shifted, you know, truthfully for one that I would call undefined to one around Bitcoin. And that if, even if each individual, even within our company, approaches Bitcoin or thinks about Bitcoin in a different way, there are common value sets that exist there. Um, and that there's the alignment behind Bitcoin, there's a common vision behind it being adopted ubiquitously. But then those things I talked about before, everyone who who is there and that I would describe as a Bitcoiner has done the proof of work. Mm. And you, there is this also common recognition that 
Bitcoin is hard to see. It is hard to understand. When you look out at your peers, eight out of 10, nine out of 10, having figured this out and having decided to devote themselves to a mission such as working on Bitcoin, building infrastructure for Bitcoin, specifically helping people hold their own private keys. There's multiple layers of that culture alignment, but it all centers around Bitcoin. Bitcoin is one of our company values. Um, and, and that wasn't something that was forced. It was, it was, it was naturally became a description rather than something we put on a mantle and tried to, to appeal to. This show is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. So one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking me how to break into the industry and Fidelity Investments recently reached out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team and help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. They actually started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services. Their in-house fintech incubator is where their teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they will provide resources, training and development to make you successful in this emergent industry. You can learn more about this at crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast. And I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online Bitcoin casino to find out more about Big Casino, the first casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. 
And not only are a Leaden sponsor, I'm also a customer of theirs too. So if you want to find out more, please head over to Leaden.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Yeah, and I can imagine in a scenario like the size of the business you are now, you're going to be recruiting people who aren't Bitcoiners. You know, that's natural, I can imagine. And I can imagine the onboarding process for somebody who is a Bitcoiner versus somebody who isn't a Bitcoiner is slightly different. You know, there's a period of, you know, uh, uh, you know doing the work for the new people coming in, understanding Bitcoin. Whereas I imagine if you bring somebody who's already a Bitcoiner, they would naturally just slot straight into the business. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that we don't have um, team members that work in certain functions where that, that Bitcoin knowledge base isn't as critical. But generally what we've experienced is those people that then um, that, that fit that description that have excelled have decided that they're here for a reason and they go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, but also certain functions are different, right? Like we have certain client-facing functions where they have to be more technical. And it's very rare that you would find someone that's highly technical about Bitcoin that understands how private keys work. We have our concierge service where people literally, like our team actually onboards people to, pri- to holding their own private keys for the first time. It's very unlikely that that person wants to do that with eight hours of their day hmm. um, or would be capable of it um, and have a passion for it if they weren't a Bitcoiner. Now, a lot of our accountants are also Bitcoiners, but that role and that that need to be a Bitcoiner is, is less important to that individual role. Um, but by and large, the people that want to work on Bitcoin, because think about it. Think, imagine you were working at a company and, and you had no conception of Bitcoin, and its price went from 70000 to 20000 Right? I made a mistake. A hardened Bitcoiner looks at that and is like, cheap Bitcoin. Yeah. Like, the mission is the mission. It would be impossible to focus and to not waver in that mission if a large majority, if not an overwhelming majority of people, kind of were not phased because they they have this deeper understanding. They understand the 21 million. They understand the problem that Bitcoin's solving. Otherwise, I don't know how you would focus, like on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, you know, weathering storms. But that is also a critical advantage. It, mm. it widens the gap between the field through these these markets. Um, you know, I, I like to think oftentimes about like the guys like, oh, there should be an app for that. When Bitcoin's ripping, some guys like I should build a Bitcoin business, and then Bitcoin crashes six months later, corrects, and they're like, eh, maybe I'm going to go back to my fiat job. You know, or like that wasn't a good idea. The Bitcoiners, it's what allows people to to build infrastructure through cycles. I don't think that would yeah. be possible in a meaningful way um, for a Bitcoin company if not for that. And how far do you think we've come, infrastructure-wise, the maturity of uh, the market, the maturity of understanding, general acceptance and adoption? Yeah, in the time you've been doing this, how far do you think we've come? It feels like an eternity, mm. you know? Like, um, but, you know, there's this interesting dynamic where it feels both like yesterday and an eternity at the same time. <laughs> um, a couple of days ago was the was the fourth year anniversary of me being at Unchained. Um, and that like both like feels like a different world as well as a, you know, like, I can't believe it's already been four years. Um, and so I think from a company standpoint, if I like think about ourselves, um, like the the company that I joined versus where we're at today and the team, it's fundamentally in a different place. I think the um, the access to, to multi-sig and to, 
to be kind of on the front lines with Casa, Sparrow, Spectre, I'm sure I'm leaving others out, um, that really kind of in this past four to five year period, the commercialization of multi-sig for adoption directly by individuals and businesses uh, is night and day where it's been. Um, I also think, you know, kind of in that 2017 period is where um, SegWit was introduced and uh, and the Lightning Network was enabled and the development, like still very early, mm. but again, a night and day comparison. Again, there might, you know, whether it's Lightning or some other um, construction of payment channels to be able to scale Bitcoin payments, that didn't exist in 2017, right? That exists today. And even though there might only be between four and 5,000 Bitcoin on the Lightning Network, that Lightning Network can enable many multiples of that, that actual value. But the fact that that development and what, what I'm seeing today in terms of the companies being funded and now, like I would say in the last 12 to 24 months for the first time, um, meaningful infrastructure investments being made in, in making payments easier, invoicing, um, accepting, receiving, that, that, that wasn't happening in 2017. So it's easy to probably look at it and be like, oh man, like how far have we actually come? But at least on our side of the fence of, of helping people hold their own private keys, payments investments starting to be made, I think you're starting to see more and more Bitcoin exclusively focused companies being funded uh, and still with only a fraction of the capital that's being sloshed around uh, and lit on fire in, in the crypto world more generally. And then when you think think ahead, I mean, we've looked in the past, so when you think ahead about if you and I are going to be sat down here in another four years' time, hopefully we'll be, you know, we're having this conversation. Um, what do you think the important kind of next uh, significant shifts we need to see in the world of Bitcoin? Is it infrastructure? Is it to do with user experience? What are the things are you thinking about over the next kind of four years? Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's, it is actually the same thing that okay. we're doing right now. Um, and that is one, that is one of the things when we talk about, or when I talk about the fact of, of Bitcoin's inevitable global adoption by everybody on the world, um, and that, that, that actually is inevitable is that Bitcoin from a network perspective functionally doesn't have to change. Yeah. Um, it actually works now. Yeah, it works <laughs> now. And there, there, there are, you know, Realistically, in order to be able to facilitate all the world's transactions, there there do have to be advancements to the Bitcoin network. But the the core function, the core value proposition, the settling for final settlement, a currency transaction, the Bitcoin blockchain, now versus five years from now or ten years from now, will be functionally the same, technically mm -hmm. and functionally the same. And whether payment channels are opened via the Lightning Network or other implementations that sit on top. Again, there will be a Bitcoin transaction and there are certain consensus rules that determine what is and isn't a Bitcoin. Those are not going to change. So I think about everything, all infrastructure that's being developed on Bitcoin is just figuring out how to, to leverage this rock that is a foundation. That is, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And if you want to transfer that, there are certain rules. They are consensus rules. They cannot be changed. Uh, they can't be changed because of the fact that not because there's a... Uh, a benevolent dictator, benevolent dictator, but that the network is decentralized and it's becoming more and more decentralized as it becomes larger. How do we better utilize 
this resource that exists today. Those three things, focusing on more and more secure custody, companies like ourselves and Mm. Casa and Spectre and Sparrow and River and Swan or anybody contributing to Bitcoin custody, um, developing more and more secure solutions that, that ease of use is part of it. It's delivering secure solutions to secure custody solutions in a way that uh, isn't necessarily trading off the ease of use versus the security. That doesn't mean everybody has to hold their own private keys, mm. but it does mean that it, people have to reliably be, have to be able to hold Bitcoin without losing it, right? Um, when, when, you know, if I talk about Bitcoin being a store of value and all of its value deriving from the fact that there will only be 21 million and that Bitcoin has fundamental value to the world because it is finitely scarce and has a foundation for the world's new money, that scarcity is not a value to you if you do not understand it or if it was possible for you to lose. Imagine you had one Bitcoin and two years from now you lost it and Bitcoin quintupled in in purchasing power. Did it store value for you? No. So the continued advancement and development of custody, also the continued advancement of knowledge distribution. More podcasts, more books, better books, more meetups. Um, That same thing that is happening today that Again, if Bitcoin is a fundamental value for that finite scarcity, that 21 million fixed supply, if you do not understand it and you buy it and it whipsaws around and you sell it and then it quintuples in value, did Bitcoin store value for you? No. Bitcoin might have increased in purchasing power, but did you benefit from it? So Mm. the focus on custody, the focus on knowledge distribution, because that is the only way um, that the world will inevitably adopt Bitcoin, but it's happening every day. I like to think about it as like each day somebody does read that book, they do learn that podcast, something happens in the world, people are censored in Canada, people are, you know, Russia's cut off from the rest of the world, uh, the Fed prints $3 trillion. There are real world experiences that that help people understand Bitcoin in addition to just reading books and listening to podcasts. And then the third thing being payments infrastructure. Those are the three core elements. There are other things that exist, but those are functionally um, all derivatives of what is the fundamental value proposition of Bitcoin? As a form of money, storing value in t- over time and, and ultimately intermediating a series of transactions. I buy Bitcoin today. I'm going to hold it for a period of time. That might be an hour, a day, five years. At some point in time, I'm going to transact with that Bitcoin in the future whether I'm converting back into dollars or I'm buying stakes from Cole Bolton two miles away in East Austin. Um, and what is that about? It's about custody and facilitating transactions and being able to facilitate payments. So I really think it's those three things, content, you know, which is the education and the knowledge base, making sure that people can custody Bitcoin, again, whether they're holding their own keys or not in a way that ensures that they do not lose it and being able to provide direct access to transactions. Um, that those three things, if those three things can p- continue to be developed, everything else is a derivative. And so we're working on it today, but it will attract more capital. As we attract more capital, the acceleration of the development of all three of those things um, will happen as a direct result. Is there anyone who's got any any more conviction than Parker Lewis <laughs> in terms of the inevitability of Bitcoin? I don't Every know. single time. But you literally explained my journey with that like proof of work thing. Like I got in in 2016, did all the shitcoin, all that kind of stuff. And in 2018, I remember sitting there being like, I was so excited about this for the last 18 months or whatever. Like I need to either give up or figure it out. 
And then through that period, you're like, you do the work, you learn it, and that's what completely changes you. And it does, I think it does, it's changed my relationship with money entirely. I'll tell you, I'll tell you another, intri- well, yes, and we, we've had all those conversations, like discussing mortgages and mm. what's the best way to structure a mortgage based on the fact you want to hold as much Bitcoin as possible. Do you use the mortgage as a way to leverage money? Lots of things we've talked about that. But- or like uh, Starbucks coffee costs $6, and that's some thousands amount of sats do i buy that or do i stack sats instead right when you help when, when you have the op when you start to understand bitcoin and even if it's prices decline over the last six months or nine months but you understand fundamentally why its purchasing power will go up over time and why eight million eight billion people in the world need it and and, and what that equates to is the purchasing power of my money is going to increase over time rather than decrease every economic decision is altered yeah. in a positive way from that fact, and you know, as as you were talking about, Danny, the that understanding of Bitcoin. One of the way that I try to conceptualize it for people is there's no way to understand it otherwise. It's kind of common. You got to read. You got to understand. You got to question what is money. That's proof of work. You got to experience Bitcoin on a direct basis. I think that sending a Bitcoin transaction and starting to see like. I just sent that and everybody else in the world is doing this. All the money's getting in the same place and there's no one in control of this thing. Like that's a that's a kind of mind opening experience in itself. Well, that's why at the meetup, I was like, anyone comes along, I'm gonna give you five pounds of Bitcoin. Just come along. I want you to see this. And for each person, we would do the transaction on the Lightning Network. We would do the do the send, they would receive the Bitcoin, and I would sit there and explain to them and say, that has happened without any centralized database that somebody's in control of. Right. No one's done anything. When I, and I would say, if I send a transaction from bank to bank, it's a ledger update in here, a ledger update in here, but they can fuck with this. You now have that. No one can take that from you. Like, right. So, so here there is this system yeah. that I might not understand, but thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not millions of people are sending transactions originating from all over the world, going to different parts of the world, all the money is getting to the right place, is only being able to spent by the people who it's supposed to be able to spent, be spent by, and no one's in control of this orchestration. Like, how that happened? Yeah. Right? And then when I, you know, if I say all value in Bitcoin is derived from the fact that there will only be 21 million, I say that repeatedly to like drive it in to like to somebody so that like when somebody walks away from this podcast, that's they're gonna be like, he said that like Count the times that he said that. He said that like 75 times. Right. Next time we do a podcast, we're going to have to have a, a, have a counter on the screen. Yeah. Have a, yeah. No, no, <laughs> have a drink. And you have to have a drink every time Parker says all yeah. value is derived from 20 we'll minutes. Like we'll never get through the episode. No, we'll have a drink. We'll have a whiskey. Yeah, we'll see if, you can, see if you can say it by the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be like, all value is derived from 26 minutes. <laughs> right. But when somebody starts to understand the asymmetry of that, yeah. say they, they do not understand anything about Bitcoin, they, they just hear it. That is why Bitcoin is of fundamental value, and it can exist at the same time when people buy Bitcoin and don't understand that. People, yes, yes, people speculate. Yes, very few people understand that fact. But if they key in on it and they're like, okay, if this is about, there's a form of money that can't be printed, and I know that the governments are printing trillions of dollars, what would be the consequence if the entire world did adopt that? They key in on this is massively asymmetric, right? Like mm-hmm. this knowledge, if the rest of the world's going to come behind me to, to adopt this as a form of money, um, you know, Daniel, you were talking, you go down that rabbit hole and, and, and 
Mike, Michael Saylor's talked about this too. I would estimate, I mean, I've probably spent a lot more than this for sure, but you could spend a hundred hours and that seems like a lot, right? But if Bitcoin is this, even if there's a very small chance, which there's not, but even, even if when someone's hearing this for the first time, someone listening to this episode is thinking, okay, I'm, I, with my limited knowledge, might weight this outcome as very low. But even if there's a small percentage chance probability, if someone's telling me that I can invest 100 hours in my time, which seems like a lot, but it's not, to learn and understand the world's greatest secret, the most asymmetric thing that has ever existed, the adoption of a new form of money that will happen very rapidly, and, and very rapidly meaning like over years and decades, not centuries. If I wanted to become a neurosurgeon, it would take me 10 years. Or if I wanted to develop any skill of material value, it's going to take years, not 100 hours. So yeah. when someone is sitting there thinking like, fuck, you're telling me I have to do 100 hours of work? That sounds like a lot. That's the fiat world. But then when they start to think about it in this framework, like, hey, if I spend 100 hours, you're telling me that I'm going to be able to potentially grasp this entire thing and then use that asymmetric information to my benefit, like then it starts to be like, hey, even if it's a, it's a low probability or I'm weighting it as a low probability going in, I have to do that work. Mm. I have to spend the 100 hours because there's nothing in the world that I could possibly benefit from from an economic perspective in a similar way by devoting 100 hours to it. 100 hours of anything, being a golfer, uh, you know, a soccer player, a podcaster, like, you know, you're not going to be a craftsman at whatever you do by devoting a hundred hours, devoting a hundred hours to Bitcoin puts you in a massive asymmetric information advantage or a position of that advantage over everybody else in the world. Uh, and that's why I reinforce it. It's like, it is about knowledge. It is accessible. I think a lot of the people that I've met that haven't gone down that path. There's this defense mechanism that says, if I go down that path, if I spend that 100 hours, I don't think I'm going to be able to understand it. Uh, and then they shut down and decide not to. And what I encourage people is like, this is the most asymmetric use of your time. If you have heard a few people that you don't necessarily think are crazy that are telling you to do this, go do it. You will, you will, you know, even if you come out with a conclusion that, no, I don't think that's, that there's there there it was still worth the investment mm. if you start to understand opportunity costs, yep. asymmetry, and you know, kind of probability weighting. And what will happen if you do spend 100 hours reading books, podcasts, uh, you will come out on the other side as, a, as a, someone who adopts Bitcoin or at least buys it for the first time. Uh, it will harden your understanding. And then from there, from that point of buying Bitcoin for the first time or realistically going down the rabbit hole for the first time, then you start to really experience Bitcoin. You start to notice things happening in the world that don't add up. You start to see how the things that, that Bitcoiners have been saying for a while are actually solved by this thing, Bitcoin. Uh, and you're able to, to allocate more toward it because the more you understand Bitcoin, the more you understand its volatility, you understand that it's just phases of adoption and ebbs and flows, but you have to be in that position when the tide goes out 
on the old economy to being holding a form of money that other people will accept. And, and the reason why they will do that is um, because everyone will opt for, for a form of money that can't be printed. And it really is as simple as that. Yeah, I'm going to finish on a little anecdote uh, that you might uh, find kind of interesting. So we, we get a lot of e- emails in from people listening to the show. One of the most interesting uh, trends I've seen over the last year is the amount of people writing to me and saying, do you have a job? Can we work on the show? Or do you know any companies are employing? Like, it's almost like this is one of the, like the final steps of going down the rabbit hole. It's like, okay, I've discovered it, I've learned about it, I've bought it, I've held it. Now I want to work in it, you know. And they're like, how do I get involved? And sometimes it may be a case of, okay, you can't get a job, but they'll go and start a podcast, or they'll start writing, or they'll start a blog, or they'll start a meetup. But that is a, like a massive trend that I've seen over this last year. It's like just email after email of people asking me this, and. I, I find that a particularly cool thing. Yeah, I think that it's a perfect extension of if you've done that proof of work, if you've spent that time, and I think like an hour is like the opening salvo, or sorry, 100 hours, probably an opening salvo. Once you get there, you're probably going to keep reading and learning about more shit. Um, but that that once once that light bulb has been turned on of, you know, I kind of like think about it as phases of, you go from a zero state where this is crazy and maybe I'm still going to buy a little Bitcoin because I, in case I'm wrong, at least I have something. You go from zero state, not being able to see anything, not being able to understand Bitcoin at any level and thinking that all these other people are crazy to something, you know, some amount of work and and, and connecting that with some experience, some thought process that you have, you, you turn it on and says, maybe, maybe there's something here. Maybe these people aren't all crazy. Um, and then once you get to that point of maybe your path to inevitability to, to being a Bitcoiner, to seeing it as money, um, to, to understanding the mechanisms, why it holds together, why it is a fundamental value, it's like to me is inevitable. Once something clicks in your head that says maybe, where, where, where again, it's, it is, it's something that triggers that. And then you have to consistently get back there on a rational, logical basis. Um, then your, your interest fundamentally changes. You're like, okay, if the world is adopting, is going to adopt this thing, Bitcoin, as its new form of money, and not in a niche way, but in an entire way, you're like, not only will my day-to-day be better if I'm actually working on that thing because it is fascinating, but I'm going to be getting in front of the the, the largest tidal wave that's ever existed. Um, and so there's some economic incentive, but then there's, uh, you know, a non-economic incentive, what we talked about before, getting to work day by day, side by side with Bitcoiners. Mm. That is more enjoyable than sitting at your fiat job, you know, hating your life. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Now, what I do also, not necessarily caution, but what I do recommend to people is working on Bitcoin or contributing to Bitcoin is not simply like writing, or not simply, but it's not confined to having a Bitcoin podcast or writing about Bitcoin or building a company like Unchained, Texas Slim and the Beef yeah. Initiative, Cole Bolton, they've incorporated Bitcoin into their businesses uh, and and kind of they're working on decentralizing and localizing market access to food um, and, and recognize, and it's one great example of like how you think differently. Like when people, these guys figured out Bitcoin, it was decentralized. They knew that there was a problem with the centralization of the food supply in the United mm. States. They were like, hey, 
the group of people that's going to re- respect and value this are Bitcoiners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's go talk to them. Um, but functionally, the only part of their business that is Bitcoin is accepting it as a form of payment, right? And so you can incorporate your business or Bitcoin into your business without having to go, quote, work on Bitcoin. And there will be similar benefits to the, the, your network, your business, people. One of the things that I've experienced in, in many different places is that Bitcoiners will change their behavior. We're going to go uh, eat dinner tonight at a steakhouse. And we were talking about going to you know Steakhouse A, Steakhouse B. And I was like, Steakhouse A has a Bitcoiner running it. Yeah. We're going to Steakhouse A. We like literally, Will and I. Should we give him a little shout out? Brian yeah, Kelly. Three Forks. Yeah, Brian yeah. Kelly, thank you for giving us a table. Yeah, we were talking about going to Bob's. Yeah. And um, Will was like, yeah, let's go to Bob's. I was like, no, there's a Bitcoiner. Yeah. And so we're changing our 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 economic decisions. And again, not everyone's going to do that. There has to be an incentive. The steak's damn good, right? Yeah. If it was a shit steak, Brian, sorry. But that's, um, there's a lot of good steaks in Austin. There are. Yeah. There are. But my point is um, that there are economic incentives, but and there are non-economic incentives. They are related to each other, but people working on Bitcoin are contributing to Bitcoin. Anybody that's storing their wealth in Bitcoin is contributing to Bitcoin in but, my book. But it works the other way around, right? Like Brian said to us that other time is like, oh, here, take my number. Anytime you want to get a table, I'll sort a table out for you. We knew it was full. We dropped Brian a text. He lets us in because he, yeah. he has it the other way around. He wants us it's there. It's a two-way street. Yeah, he wants Bitcoiners there as well, and we have that relationship with him. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and like I mean, I actually, I think I'm not sure if I actually met these guys. I maybe we've communicated them over the line, but like the Tahini's guys, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. Imagine like you're you're sitting there, you figured out Bitcoin, and you work in the food industry. Like coming and working for Unchained probably isn't how you're going to contribute the most value. Well, maybe go work for a restaurant like that. Maybe go work for Brian, right? You know, like that that there are more ways to contributing and building on Bitcoin because a lot of the ways that we build tools is talking to our clients, whether they're Bitcoin miners, what tools do you guys need? If it's a restaurant, hey, you need to have a connection between, you know, a lightning wallet and a multi-sig vault, you're contributing to Bitcoin. (laughs) You know, like not only are you storing your wealth in it, not only are you accepting payment and, and making that available to a community or to a client base, but then you're also going to attract Bitcoiners. And mm. I think that that is something that we will increasingly see. Businesses getting on the Bitcoin standard and then Bitcoiners not feeling like they have to 100% go work for a Bitcoin company, but going and creating value for other founders and other business lines that are incorporating Bitcoin onto their balance sheet, into their payment rails, because there's a lot of work to do there. Um, and Bitcoin only exists as a medium to um, end central banking, free us from persistent debasement. But in order to do that, and and like money is only good to go buy other things in the economy, and we need food and oil and gas and healthcare and all these other all these other businesses that deliver real world value need to incorporate Bitcoin mm-hmm. and working on that side of the fence. Um, and incorporating Bitcoin from delivery of real goods and services is just as valuable in my eyes than working at Unchain and helping people hold their own private keys. Yeah. All right. Looking at the clock, we're gonna have to we have to get an Uber in a minute. Can have the steak. You want to close out? Tell people a bit about Unchain, what you're doing, how to find out more. 
Yeah. Um, so what we fundamentally do at Unchain, like our uh, probably the most core part of our mission at beyond Bitcoin is helping people hold their own private keys, um, enabling more people to do that, not just do it, but to do it more um, accessibly and more securely. And so um, we, you know, fundamentally help people go to that point of zero to one. Uh, we also help people go from a state of being on a single key and wanting to um, graduate to a multi-sig arrangement or just valuing and benefiting from having a partner. So that is what we're working on. We have uh, concierge services to help people get set up, um, to hold people's hands through that. And then we deliver financial services. So we help people buy and sell Bitcoin. We lend against Bitcoin. People should do that very conservatively and understand the risks. We help people with retirement accounts, but really what we think about ourselves as a financial institution that empowers people to hold their own private keys and for people that value our approach to custody, then we want to take care of everything else they do. So that's that's what we do. People can find us at unchain.com. Um, they can find me on Twitter, Parker A. Lewis, at Parker A. Lewis. Um, I've got a blog that we're working on turning into a collection of essays. In, in a, or a book. Or a book uh, in, in paperback form, but that's also linked on our website. It's called Gradually Then Suddenly. We um, we made a series about we did. that. We did make a series so, so about three it. Three shows. Go and sh- we'll put those in the show notes. Sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely put those in the show notes. And then the online versions are on our website. If uh, you go to resources on our website at unchained.com, and there's a section called the GTS series for Gradually Then Suddenly. We will put that out there. Uh, always great, Parker. Thank you. Uh, always like making a show. Always like going to have a steak with you, which we're going to do now. So thank you for coming in. Thanks for doing this. And again, just congratulations on everything you've done with Unchained. Watching it grow has been incredible. Yeah, let's keep crushing. Let's do this again uh, next year in four years. Maybe not 10 years. Not, not, no, we're not going to wait four years, but no, it's, it's always good to have you in Austin. Um, we love this being your home away from home, which we know it is <laughs> yeah. uh, here in the Bitcoin capital of the world. Um, let's go get some steaks. Hey, I fucking coined that time first, didn't I? For uh, Bedford, yeah. Yeah, I coined Bedford as the Bitcoin capital of the world first. <laughs> uh, More ironically, though. I can prove it as well. Just like if someone says X is the real Bitcoin or whatever, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you say. It's matter what the, the, the actual reality is and what the consensus is. The consensus is. is. I don't know if you're going to say consensus. All right, let's go and eat. Good All man. Right. See you soon. Boom. Thanks. Okay, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I know you will have enjoyed that show with Parker. I've made a bunch of shows with Parker before. I did a Gradually and Then Suddenly series, which you should definitely go and check out. I think when sentiment gets a bit low, it's always good to get back to the fundamentals and remind ourselves of why Bitcoin can't lose. So I hope you enjoyed this. And as ever, you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com and I will reply. It's not Danny. Some people think it goes to Danny. Danny doesn't do it. No, I do it. I reply to everyone. And also, listen, if you're going to the Pacific Bitcoin Conference or you're going to be at the Texas Blockchain Summit, hit me up. Come and find me. It'd be good to catch up. Talk Bitcoin. Talk football. Maybe grab a beer or a coffee or even just a donut, whatever it is. Let's just meet up and let's hang out. All right, love you all. Got to shoot. Got to go and do the school run. Reality of life kicks in sometimes. So I'll see you all next week. <laughs>